0: Hi everyone. This is Holly Herndon.
1: I'm Matt Dryhurst.
0: And you're listening to Independent. to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. Bring bring bring. Hi, Hi Emily.
1: Emily. Hey guys. <laughs> How's it going?
2: It's going well. How are you? We're
0: pretty, pretty okay, yeah. Yeah.
1: We've been vaccinated. I'm still feeling like I'm still feeling a bit like hung over from the vaccination, not gonna oh, lie. It's
0: not from the vaccination. You're just hungover. <laughs> oh, <yeah.
1: laughs> Maybe <yeah. laughs> But otherwise otherwise yeah, not not bad. Not bad. Where where are you at the moment?
2: I'm in Los Angeles. I'm looking out of my window at the skyline of downtown LA.
1: Wow.
0: Nice. It's a nice (laughs) sight.
1: It sounds blissful and wonderful. Yeah. You guys have to
2: come visit soon.
0: Yeah. I would love to.
1: Yeah, we kind of we contemplated it. Um,
0: yeah, it was kind of crazy actually. We planned to spend like a month there after getting vaccinated, visiting my family in Tennessee, and we were looking for sublets, and they were like, you know, like seven thousand dollars for a month or something. Oh I my like, god!
1: Is, is it me or it's it crazy? Got so expensive. I don't know if this is like plays into the whole inflation fears or whatever, but like
0: I could not find a reasonable sublet. It was bananas.
1: It was crazy. Yeah,
2: I believe that. I think that New York real estate went down a lot at least for rentals, whereas LA didn't. And obviously there's just a widespread housing crisis here.
1: So, yeah.
0: Right. That seems to be spreading into even like second, third tier cities and stuff. It's pretty nuts. Yeah. I've also seen a lot of
1: stories about just generally like the Uber, Airbnb uh, level of service, like the prices have just gone quietly really through the roof recently. So that might also contribute to a yeah, to Uber,
2: yeah, totally. Uber is really crazy, and I guess it's because people are wising up to the fact that they don't want to drive for Uber, especially if they get some amount of government support, which is not a bad thing. Um, yeah, but totally. it's definitely a really stark difference from a few months ago, even.
0: Okay, well, we're definitely going to talk about some economic issues later on <laughs> in, the, in the episode. Great. Right? It's kind of uh, in the background or in the foreground of your um of your novel quite a bit, but can you do us a favor and just kind of like brief- introduce yourself? yeah, first, briefly actually. introduce yeah. yourself to our listeners who might not be so familiar with you
2: Sure, so hello, everybody. I'm Emily Siegel. I'm <laughs> a novelist, publisher, and trend forecaster, and I put out a book a little more than six months ago called Mercury Retrograde which is a novel in an auto-fictional mode that we're going to talk about today. And then I also run a consultancy called Nemesis that does trend forecasting and brand strategy. And I used to run a trend forecasting group and Art Collective called K-Hole. Those are the basics.
0: That's great. Wow. You've done this before. That was uh, very (laughs) cool. So what did you call it? auto auto Auto-fictionalizing? So it's called- yeah, I
2: said it was in an autofictional mode. So the okay. character shares my name and much of my biography. But I also made stuff up in the book. It's not all true. So in that sense, it is a novel.
0: It was a real treat knowing you and kind of trying to decipher which parts were... Um <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> know, which are fictional. Um, but yeah, maybe so that we can just like lay the ground for people who have not yet read it. And we'll be sure to link to um where people can purchase it in the show notes. If you could just give us like a brief um outline of the storyline, kind of this the setting. Sure.
2: So the book is set in New York City post-Occupy Wall Street and pre-Trump's election to the presidency. And It tracks a character named Emily Siegel, which is also my name, who goes to work at a mysterious startup called X that is trying to create a layer of text all over the internet. And she has this fantasy or dream or goal of turning that company into a work of art. And in tracking that attempted process, we kind of get a glimpse into the ways that art and technology and media all converged in this rather decadent period of New York and American history. And it plays with some of the themes of some auto fiction that I love, which has to do with failure and how our failed attempts to make certain types of art can generate other types of art. So in this case, the character's failure to create a quote unquote good work of art out of working at this job becomes a novel, which of course readers can judge if it's good, but it definitely is kind of objectively a work of art. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the basics. It's a little bit of a difficult book to summarize because it doesn't have like a thrillery plot or anything. It's sort of one of those books where nothing happens, but I hope nothing happens in an entertaining way.
0: Yeah, definitely. It, one thing that I found really interesting was this kind of the, I don't know whether to call her the character or you. <laughs> <in this laughs> either either, either one works. the protagonist seems to be like you mentioned kind of um wrestling with this idea of um what an artist is um sometimes you know it it could range from anything from like marketing, branding, or trying to turn the startup into an art project, as you mentioned. But sometimes it also, she's also kind of putting art on a pedestal that's entirely removed from the marketplace with her kind of cohort of friends and their experimental theater things. And then in the end, it kind of, um, the conclusion is somewhat that that art is just a painting, like ultimately it's just a painting. Um, So yeah, I was wondering if you could kind of like contextualize this line of thinking around that time. Um, and have you come to any new conclusions through this kind of process about what it means to be an artist? I know that's kind of like a big question, like, what is an artist? but I feel like it's <laughs> such a big theme in this book. <laughs> no, we can definitely
2: try to address that and we'll see if we get anywhere. Um, I certainly don't have a conclusive answer, but in the book, the Emily character is inspired by this moment in post-internet art where the visuals of the startup and technological landscape were being mined for actual artwork. So the logo of a particular company could be silk screened onto a plexiglass cube, and that could be in the white box of a gallery. And it, there was sort of like a gesture happening saying that there was all of this visual material being generated by the commercial world that all of a sudden could have validity in an art context. And mm-hmm. In a competitive way, because in the book, the Emily character is has this sort of rivalrous close friendship with a successful male artist named Marcus, who's doing that type of work. Emily tries to one-up Marcus and the other artists in her cohort by going to work at one of these startup companies and turning the brand of the company into a work of art before it ever gets out into the world, rather than doing something like appropriation, where you take the SoundCloud mm-hmm. logo and put it on a Pringles can and put that on a plinth or whatever. So that's sort of where the art gesture, quote unquote, comes from in the book. And then at the same time, she discovers that her bosses at the company X, these two guys, Seth and Pete, Also, thought of their own project as art, which becomes rather confusing because, in the business world of the book, art just means something that isn't meant to make money. And then she's also struggling with sort of more conventional or traditional ideas of what art is, for example, making an oil painting or writing a book. And all of these frames sort of coalesce and then dissolve at various points during the book. Um, to answer the other part of your question, in my own experience, I was wrestling with these themes in large part because of my work with K Hole, which was a art collective and trend forecasting group I ran with four friends for five years, starting in 2011. Well, whispers of it began in 2010, and we were t- we took this vernacular co- corporate form of the trend forecasting report, which were often circulated as PDFs that cost tens of thousands of dollars that companies would pay for that tried to describe what young artists and consumers in urban areas thought about or liked to do. And it had a lot of crazy brash imagery and neologisms and stuff. And we made a fan fiction version of that that we distributed as an artwork. So we were playing Mm -hmm. with what it meant to hijack a commercial form, and then introduce it in a more ambiguous way, both in art contexts and on the internet. And of course, when you're doing a highly conceptual art project, a lot of what's going on internally is this feeling of like, what the fuck are we doing? Is this actually art? Or is this just like, a totally idiosyncratic, like random idea? And part of what you're kind of asked to do as an artist doing conceptual art is to like, own it internally as an art gesture and believe it yourself. And you kind Mm -hmm. of have to pilot believing that what you're doing is art so that everyone else can follow you. And that's a really Mm -hmm. tall order because obviously we all doubt our art projects all the time. And that also includes more traditional forms of art, like making music or making imagery or writing. So that same type of you know, internal inconsistency or self-doubt or whatever applies. But then there's like the method acting that's supposed to come with the conceptual artwork where you're like, no, I'm insisting that this is art. So that question is what motivated me initially. And then also, I think after this period of rather like media heavy, everything goes, tech obsessed, post-internet art, And you can kind of always hear like the scare quotes around post-internet when I talk about it, or maybe you should imagine them being there. Um, (laughs) I was really motivated to try and do something more craft-based and also to do something solo because I was lucky to get into these really amazing collaborative situations as a very young artist. But it also meant that there was always this thing at the back of my mind saying like, hey, Emily, like do you know how to do anything by yourself? <laughs> like yeah. what happens if, you know, you have to really sit down and take responsibility for a whole project from start to finish, what would that feel like? So,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, writing a novel is, a, is about as craft based and old school as it gets. I mean, the most old school, of course, are like dance and poetry, but novel writing is also rather old school. And so I kind of set that as my own ambitious goal um, and went on to be tortured by it for about five years. And <laughs> now the
1: book exists. I wonder, yeah, it's there's, there's three distinct topics there. I kind of want to go back a little bit to the Cahill period and that tension between, um, you know, trend forecasting, kind of leaning into the trend forecasting as- aspect of an art practice versus what, If I remember at the time, I mean, this has always kind of existed, right? Like there's a very thin line between, um, you know, creating work uh, for a target audience, let's say, right? Like the history of pop music of of the 20th century was, Mm -hmm. you know, employing people to be able to target demographics and then signing Britney Spears or whatever, and, you know, sending her out to uh, malls across the country, right? Like, Um, But the trend forecasting component of that or the research component of that was very much buried, right? Um, Even though we all know that it exists and actually with the advent of like having the internet at your fingertips, um, you know, over time you begin to learn how much of this stuff has been kind of uh, constructed as an artifice or whatever. Um, But but very much around the time of Cahill, it was also kind of interesting, right? Because you had, at least in music world, the proliferation of tools – for you to be able to kind of be your own trend forecaster and that being signaled as kind of like part of your job as an artist, right? Mm. Like if you you look at Spotify, part of the idea of a Spotify or you go back to a SoundCloud even then was like, you know, um, figure out, you know, figure out ways for, to, to analyze your potential audience and mm-hmm. construct your artwork in, in, in a feedback relationship with them, right? Like that, that veil would be completely pulled away. Um, and I wonder if you could contextualize that a little bit more with, with maybe stuff that, that, that you were in, interacting with, because I think that the, my, my basic conclusion around that stuff, which, which is not a very puritanical one um, is that it really just is a matter of emphasis, you know, and 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 your and Cahal and and uh, uh, as decision to emphasize that aspect actually felt like more of a novel gesture um, than burying it. Considering you know, most at least kind of like high production artworks seem to involve that that aspect of trend forecasting anyway.
2: Right. So we were trying to do the quiet parts loud, as you suggest, um, and we thought that there was something funny and kind of nasty about exposing this logic that was at work around us all the time and then hoping that people could participate in it. We actually didn't have a very clear sense of our own audience when it started because we were 22 and just making a zine. And so your audience then is just like your friends basically and like people that you might be able to find on the internet. And then our audience was expanded by the fact that I was working at a publicity firm, which was my first ever job. And that's covered a little bit in the book. And I stole the mailing list, not the entire mailing list, but a pretty sexy (laughs) mailing list from that job,
1: which helped. You mean the protagonist in your book stole the mailing list. (laughs) Exactly,
2: exactly. Um, And so, you know, I learned how to write a press release and I got some high value emails from that as to the other members of K-Hole in their own way. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of like, had some like baby publicity methods, but it wasn't really, we weren't really intending um, to capture a particular audience per se, but we were yeah. very much framing it as a conceptual artwork. And we were looking at it in the way that sometimes the art world tempts you to look at art, which is kind of like a game. So you're looking at the gestures that the people are making around you and you're trying to outgesture them so yep. we saw some of the themes in these trend reports which had to do with consumption and sort of like the glossy aesthetics or in the first case in the case of the first report like which is called fragmentation we were looking at fragmented media campaigns that individual consumers were supposed to put together in their own minds and we saw resonances with the artworks that were being made among our peers or the people that we looked up to who are a few years older, a lot of like the younger than Jesus crowd and the internet art 1.0 type of artists mm-hmm. who influenced all of us. And we also were aware that the actual tread reports were in many cases, much more elaborately construct- constructed and much more information dense than a lot of the art we were seeing. So we were into that. And yeah. I had had some experience already at that point, even though I was still really young of working on newspapers and magazines. So that was the sort of craft aspect that I could bring to the table. I was like, Hey guys, this is how you make a little publication. This is how you figure out what's on the first page and what's on the second page. And yeah. that was a big part of it. Cause I was, I was down to think of myself as an artist, but I was really obsessed with magazines at that point. Like that was my total obsession. And so it was more like uh, an indie publishing project that metastasized into an art project rather than the other way around. And a lot of, you know, in response to what you were just bringing up, a lot of people had really strong responses to K-hole positive and negative from the beginning. And part of it, there was a little bit of like, shooting the messenger going on, where people Mm -hmm. were like, how dare you acknowledge that this type (laughs) of trend forecasting and sort of like commercial or corporate quote unquote manipulation is even happening. Like, I think that we were really into poking that Mm -hmm. sort of like squeamishness that a lot of people had around acknowledging the commercial as a sphere. And of course, that's just a pop art thing. That's like a Warhol thing. We did not invent that at all. Sure. Um, And we were definitely obsessed with Bernadette Corporation and General Idea and a lot of the more collective art projects that came before us that were working with commercial forums and magazine forums and stuff like that. So we were kind of like in that way that super young kids can be really nerdy about their references or at least were at that point in history. I don't know if that's any longer the case. Um, we were kind of trying to like put all that into a blender and then, you know, dump the blender out into a PDF. And that was our
1: initial method. Totally. And I mean, in my mind, there's also something quite honest to that, right? Because like in parallel, you could also bring up this magazine, which of course was also kind of leaning into, I mean, in my interpretation, at least was like, it was leaning into the reality that most of the people producing it were having to take jobs in the kind of entertainment industry right or in the marketing industry or in the kind of Fashion. publicity industry and again they were making the the quiet parts loud as you put it really well right like the, i mean us being of like a similarish kind of uh generation it, it it's always been very abstract to me this idea of like a pure artist whose work is somehow completely removed or divorced from these like economic or professional factors, right? Cause like I never got to experience that. I mean, there's, there's a very few like quite wealthy people I know who you know left art school and then pursued a pure path.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, I totally relate to that. And I think that actually I was having a very interesting conversation with a good friend of mine who will remain nameless, but has been on this very podcast. When the NFT stuff started popping off, which of course we can discuss later. They were saying to me, like, (laughs) you're like, what's an NFT? Um, the, the, (laughs) they were saying to me, like, this is so part of why I'm feeling so triggered around this stuff is that it's making me imagine what it would have been like to actually been able to be an artist from the jump or something like the idea that we could have actually just been paid for our work instead of having to take these jobs. And I know that feeling and that kind of, weird, regretful stance. But at the same time, in a silver linings way, I think it's really important that so many artists and writers were kind of forced into the corporate theater because it's such an important part of how power circulates and how imagery and language and interpersonal conduct is sort of, you know, created in our time and in our lifetimes. And if we had been able to support ourselves just as artists and had no reason to have these weird jobs, we would have kind of missed out on that. And so then there's like an anthropological or ethnographic lens of someone who doesn't necessarily think of themselves as like a business person or like doesn't dream of having a corporate job for their whole lives, but nonetheless gets exposed to all this material and then can use their work to make a more incisive critique of culture because they actually know what they're talking about. Whereas if you're totally, you know, just doing your own thing, that can be extraordinary for certain practices, but sometimes it misses the mark because there's so much of what's going on in the world that has nothing to do with art or culture or coolness or whatever.
1: Yeah, totally. And it, and, it, and also in that period of time, right, you see like the the fall of this idea of an institution that would just kind of take care of all of all of the, the stuff of making a career for you, Right. And so, like, I've often thought, I mean, on the one hand, like, there's a matter of necessity where a bunch of people around about our generation, I think, had to get jobs. And that was a very, very taxing, long part of your process. And the the, the benefits of that are what you're describing. But the other side, too, is that, you know, the reality of being an artist now in a, in an era of, like, declining budgets and declining infrastructure is the ability to kind of project manage you know what I mean? Like you, you, or like having to do all the things yourself yes, yes. in this particular way that actually, you know, I mean, I had a desk job in various industries, like quite demanding industries for a decade before ever, like seeing any returns on the artwork that, that I was doing. Um, but that ability to actually execute something on like a bigger scale Seems to be something that's really advantageous uh, for better and worse, right? Like I, I really wish it would not were not the case, um. But but that is kind of that is kind of the state of the state of, of of things.
2: Totally. And for me personally, I had this kind of lucky strike where I worked at the branding agency Wolf Olins in New York, and one of the other members of K-Hole also worked there, and we had a bunch of other people our age doing. Research and design, who were really cool. And we were there with the printers and the computers and the stuff we could steal from the supplies cabinet. And it actually created kind of a studio setting where we could spend time together. We would have what we needed to make our work. And so we made the best of it. Um, And that's just like the cliche of, you know, the Gen X zine being made on the Xerox machine after work or whatever. But it actually kind of empowered us even though other really weird and disempowering things were happening at the same time by dint of being in a corporate environment so it was just like a highly complex like good and bad smoothie
0: yeah it reminds me of something that you brought up um, a couple minutes ago saying that um, being an artist is kind of like method acting you kind of have to co- like convince yourself that you're in that role and then you <laughs> convince the wider public and I that really resonates and it's something that we think about a lot because, you know, of course we're doing this podcast and we do a lot of
1: contextualization, um, but also
0: we also just do like research and things yeah. that aren't necessarily, that don't so cleanly fit, especially into the box of musician. And you can really see how kind of like wider culture, it kind of like fries a brain. Like, well, what are you? Are you a musician? Yeah. You know, it's like, people want like a really clear box to put you in and it's it almost like, it's almost like detrimental to an artist's career to try to be so versatile in a way, but which is really disheartening. So I wonder how you, how you feel about that. Cause you're still actively doing kind of trend forecasting and you're also a novelist and how do you kind of like, yeah, navigate these different um, roles?
2: Oh, totally. I mean, it's ridiculous how silly it sounds for me to be like, I'm an artist and a novelist and a publisher and a trend forecaster and a brand <laughs> strategist and a creative director. You know, it's very like barista slash horror actress or something <laughs> silly. <laughs> um,
3: it's real, though.
2: But I basically cultivated a good sense of humor about it because the point of all of those tags is to just help someone get their head around some part of what you do so that they're capable of making a further inquiry if they so desire. And we all kind of know that all of these categories are very porous to say the least and rather contingent. I was always into artists because it seemed like you could do the most things under that banner and Mm -hmm. you might actually get to do something like glamorous (laughs) once in a while. Um, whereas writer didn't seem to come with those privileges when I was mm-hmm. sort of coming of age. And it was like, you get to work for the Huffington Post for $18,000 a year. And then everyone <laughs> hates you. I was like, that doesn't sound that fabulous. Like, um, so there was like that part of it where it's just sort of like trying on different hats experimentally. And then there was mm-hmm. like the attempt for legibility, um which is always kind of falls short but i'm try i try to just like hold it all quite lightly if i can
0: yeah that's a that's a good good move <laughs> i feel like i also resonate the most with the term artist but p- like really pisses people off cuz they're like no musician <laughs> or like that, that composer right but, but totally like,
1: it's like but once that's the thing once once you like see behind the curtain it really again just is like a method acting thing it's just it's just a characterization like it's a it's a characterization strategy for most people, because in actuality, you know, like the vast majority the vast majority of people do now have to assume many different roles. And maybe the most challenging thing in a sense is that you know we've talked about this on a few a few episodes is like you know the the day to day reality, the financial reality, the professional reality, the industrial reality of pursuing the arts in whatever capacity has changed. But the archetypes and the narratives associated with it just haven't. They've mm-hmm. just kind of stayed like totally fixed. So you find that often. I mean, we're a couple that makes artwork together, you know, and it's like you'll have, you know, depending on the person you talk to, the most stubborn possible uh, uh, scenario is, is the archetype that is imposed on you. And that's not really your, cho- your choice. Not at all. I mean, that I mean, means
0: that people see me as a composer and Matt as like a technician, or like, mm-hmm. or not
1: sorry. I'm mm-hmm. like a meaning but like, no, no, no like, but I do because I'm am a white dude with glasses, like, so I'm the- like the nerd. Okay, like yeah, sure, like,
0: and I'm like, I don't know, I'm more, I do more audio engineering than you do, and you, yeah, do Holly's like- better
1: at math than I am. Like, <laughs> I, I I like I get more emotional about music oftentimes, like, but, but you know, but it, but it's, but it's a look, you know. It, that's the thing is like, it's you're kind of like trying to compete, trying to keep up with these looks that were forged in an entirely different economy and okay you you do what you do what you will with it but 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 on on a personal level it feels quite like what's the word like
0: uh, reductive just
1: silly it's just like it's it's not uh, it's not true
2: <laughs> right totally it's performative and that gets back to the method acting mm-hmm. bit of it and some of those roles are easier to assume in certain contexts and some of them are more useful than others mm-hmm. um and so i always just feel like the more the merrier with identities, totally. like more is more and just like keep stacking mm. them on top of each other. And then people who are really paying attention will sort of get to the heart of your work and understand it. And yep. the people who aren't ever going to be like that anyway, can just like be satisfied by whatever tag they're looking for. And then we can all just like, you know, sally forth with our individual practices, which is what we were going to do anyway. But it's mm. totally true Why you're bringing up that like, There is this delta between the way that the material and other conditions of art making have developed and the roles themselves. And the idea that you're supposed to put like a proper noun on yourself and be a thing Mm -hmm. um, is itself really tricky. I mean, this is why I I was so horrible at online dating. It's because I like never knew (laughs) what to say about my like tastes or whatever, or like what I liked or what I was. And I was recently at the beach hearing this girl talk about how much she loved camping as like a real interest. And I was like, God, that's so like, okay, Cupid and perfect. And the only thing that I love it as much as she loves camping is dead stock. <laughs> 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 Which just definitely doesn't make sense, you know? So I never really felt at home. Have you
1: tried that on your dating profile?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Luckily I'm engaged to be married. So I don't have a... Oh, congrats congrats you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, no shade to people who are getting married and still dating, but that's not my... <laughs> <laughs> my vibe right
0: now. <laughs> so let's let's like veer back towards the novel a little bit i want to get into some of the kind of really interesting economics that are described it's first of all the backdrop is super interesting it's this kind of like psychedelic relationship people have to money when they're in a kind of overfunded startup that doesn't have a revenue model i mean that in and of <laughs> itself is like a kind of wild setting. And then at the same time, you're also trying to like, um, I think you call it the trying to find the delta between the cultural and financial capital. Um, Mm. So there's that kind of tension there. So can you talk about like the the setting around money and also how your kind of protagonist fits into that?
2: Sure. So I think at one point in the book, it's described as the amniotic haze of money is no object. And Mm. it's very much set in the era of the fat startup. So Mm. it's, different than a lot of the cliches of Silicon Valley that we know, although not all of them, of course, but it's sort of this like Peter Thiel zero to one idea that like you should try and get the, the fattest cats, most a player type of talent and like outspend everyone else to get it. And that, you know, you should just pour as much money into it as possible. And the like VC strategy behind that is that, Everyone is sort of looking for a unicorn and one unicorn company that makes billions would kind of like balance out all of the other investments and justify mm-hmm. this really, really over the top type of spending mm-hmm. um, and investment. And also a comfort with letting companies run for a really long time without a revenue model or yep. and or not checking on their revenue models very rigorously and the WeWork story is kind of like the most Mm -hmm. extreme version of this and I kind of wish the WeWork documentary was better I mean it's still amusing because it's an amusing story um Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really get into the nitty-gritty of the relationships and economics behind it the most or Mm -hmm. sorry as much as it could um but this sort of like Hypertrophied growth, like just more is more, and like giving basically like a blog $60 million and trying to get them to then use that money to hire like the most extra people in every discipline and just like <laughs> see what happens is what was going on at that time. And I think, you know, happens from time to time still, but is kind of less of the trend perhaps now um, as these different types of forms are continuing to evolve. But yeah, that was like the. That was the vibe. And there's a very strange thing that happens when making money is based on sort of like how well you can ignite the imagination of a VC rather than actually like give people a product, good or service that they want to transact around. And it becomes very like fanciful and fictional because your audience is actually really small. Your audience is like this set of masters of the universe who have infinitely deep, pockets and they want to believe something about the future. So in that sense, it has something to do with trend forecasting. And the role of the founder is to, you know, ignite the imagination of these people and get their money. And then somewhere down the road, try and get regular people interested in it in some way, or if it's a B2B startup, try and get their peers at other companies involved. But that's like always in the future as well. So Mm -hmm. these sort of like it becomes very like fantastical and performative and it fundamentally kind of tears you away from reality in a way. And that's not, I don't mean that to sound like only negative. I mean, of course it has very many negative consequences in terms of just like, Wasting huge amounts of resources that could be used to either do something cool or make the world better. And so that's a bummer. But like at the same time, starting any project requires some sort of fanciful or imaginative take on the future. And so Mm -hmm. I'm not knocking that part. That's like a given. But then it just got taken to a really crazy scale um, (laughs) when in the context of investing in tech startups. Mm
1: -hmm. Totally. It's totally recursive too. I mean, like I, we watched the WeWork documentary. It was kind of strange because I, I in a previous life, like I had a tech job in the first WeWork in San Francisco. Oh wow! So when they when they set it up in and the it's funny how recursive that kind of bullshit it, it is. I mean to go back to method acting, right? Like that, like chaos magic kind of like. You know, paint a picture, paint a story for somebody, and have them populate it with capital, and then everything. will. and somewhere along the line, someone probably quite quiet will come out a way, come out with a way to create a business out of it. But everyone in that we work, like the, the my one enduring memory of it was that nobody did any work there. That mm. in fact, like the the performative spectacle of like creating these we works invited in a bunch of younger entrepreneurial types or whatever who went to WeWork in order to try and sell people on another vision that didn't mm-hmm. have a business next to it. So it was actually impossible to work there. It was kind of a problem. Like
0: a fractal. Of yeah, it's totally it's totally recursive.
1: Like the, And I remember, I mean, this was like before, at least in the company I was working at, you didn't have remote work. But I remember like talking to other employees there and being like, how do we engineer a scenario where we can work somewhere else? Because coming in here is impossible. Like all you heard <laughs> were people pitching absurdist things there was no commerce happening whatsoever or having
0: parties and stuff yeah
1: there was like parties everything was a social you know and it was like right it's it's funny to watch the documentary and see how recursive or like fractal that mm-hmm. that process was because i didn't realize that was quite how that was how we work itself was, was born <laughs> it makes a ton of sense in retrospect um but again that really blurs that line with the whole method acting right it's like a you know because i mean there's not really like a You know, one of the main conceits, even amongst the most kind of puritanical people when they think about art and the art world, like one of the main conceits there is that there's no utility. Right. So when you have Mm. when you have all these tech companies that haven't figured out utility for what they're doing, what then distinguishes what they're doing from performance art. Right. Like what.
2: Exactly. And that's sort of what the book is trying to map out, because in the Mm -hmm. book, Mercury Retrograde, the Emily character goes to work at the company X and they have no model for revenue and they have no real product. They just have a huge amount of investment and really smart people in a weird office in a residential building in Williamsburg. And what they end up doing is, you know, creating an ad campaign around their non-existent product and then throwing a party to celebrate the ad campaign. And then there's another party at a museum to celebrate the party that's celebrating the ad campaign and so on. And, you know, through the eyes of the character and her own doubt about her own creative process, you also see the anxieties and doubts of the founders. And there's a sort of reverberation of, I guess, creativity, like the creative impulse um, as it's like attempting to find a substrate, which is like common to both conceptual or performance art in the space of the book and business. And so it all Mm. becomes like rather blurry. Yeah. And also, like none of those things really work out in the book. It's not like the conceptual art, because it's quote unquote conceptual art is good and business is bad. It's more like yep. it's all sort of like speculative and floating um, and could all explode at any moment, and some of those things do, and some of they don't. Some of them don't.
0: A lot of there's a lot of parallels to this and the kind of crypto um, the kind of intoxication that people feel around futurism in the crypto space. I feel like those two kind of bleed mm. together in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, well. If anything, I mean, I, I, I think there's parallels. I would also push back in a sense because I think that like, in a in a way, a lot of the criticisms that are leveled at crypto are generally that it's this kind of hopium, speculative bubble type environment against some kind of uh, fictitious standard mm-hmm. that the tech, you know, the tech stocks that you know ETFs invest right. in are somehow these like. Solid, grounded, <laughs> utilitarian uh, services. <laughs> where you're like, well, in actuality, no. Like, I mean, there's a whole lot of bullshit in crypto, of course, but like, there's actually stuff that people use. I mean, like, how many billion-dollar companies? I mean, do you remember uh, what was what was that service? What was that company? It was like the fastest-growing company of all time. Uh, I've forgotten their name. This is how this is how a crypto pointed.
0: service no, no, no. This no, was chain?
1: this was around about the time we're talking about. This is like uh, you know, Web 2.0, mm-hmm. um, and they sold coupons to things.
0: Groupon? Groupon. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, like
1: Groupon, classic example. I mean, like th- these were like vaunted by, you know, business figures across the, across the world, like on the front page of, of newspapers talking about how this idea was going to revolutionize the world. And it was like, it was a group buying, it was, a it was coupons from the back of, from the back of supermarket magazines, basically like, you know, I'd argue that crypto even now has more utility than than that service. Or right, maybe a few right. others that, might, that appear in your book, Emily. Uh, I'm not, <laughs> right. not going to try. Mean, in
2: the, I mean, in the book, you know, when they start trying to get down to brass tacks about how to make money, what the only thing that comes up is like, oh, we have to, you know, get a sponsorship from Coke or Pepsi. So it just goes back to kind of like the most traditional old school mm-hmm. advertising model. And of course, that's not something new. Yep. And in the case of the sphere, I always think of teachings from Tibetan Buddhism and Buddhism more broadly that say like any stimulus can have three responses, passion, aggression, or ignorance. And mm-hmm. that definitely is happening yeah. in the crypto universe <laughs> where like certain people are like just so passionate about it, so excited, so like hyper optimistic or passionate in the sense of covetous, like tons of FOMO, wanting what other people have, et cetera. Aggression can then also be like thinking that it's the worst thing ever, that it's like, you know, (laughs) going to destroy the planet on its own. Um, Thinking that it's just like the ab, like thinking that it's kind of uniquely bad, I guess I would put under the
3: the category
2: of aggression and then ignorance is the sort of like uh, i don't get what you're talking about thing which is what we saw on the elon musk episode of snl where they're like what is it bro what is it dog i don't know what the hell you're talking about which was like not funny but it illustrated the ignorance part um and because crypto is operates on just like this insane tempo like it goes so quickly or can like heat up so quickly I think it motivates those three types of responses like almost like in hyper speed. so I'm fascinated by it because it's just like human psychology on fleek it's just like crazy to watch everyone's and I mean I have them too I have all of the I have passion aggression and ignorance around crypto like bubbling up in my own self all the time when I'm trying to figure it out or when I've been trying to figure it out so I definitely, you know, because I'm a granny now and this isn't my first rodeo, I'm like, oh, certain people when presented with a new version of the internet and new money-making opportunities will think it's like the most incredible optimistic thing that can like cure everything. And some people are (laughs) going to think it's the worst thing ever. And some people are going to try and ignore it until they can't ignore it anymore. And it's just like, there's always going to be some combination of that. And then our job is to sort of like, find the actual places where interesting interventions can be made and make them so that the new version of the future doesn't like leave behind things that are important. Couldn't yeah,
0: agree more. 100%. And I think one thing that attracts me to it is what, basically what you're describing is this kind of dynamism, especially coming from you know having kind of like one foot firmly planted in the music industry, which isn't really exper- experiencing inertia, but it's more just kind of like a slow slide into like worse and worse conditions. Mm. It's, re- it's really inspiring to see a space that, you know, with the good, the bad and the ugly, everything's just kind of happening at once and really fast. It's just good to see Kind of an energy where it feels like the air has been sucked out of the room and other fields.
1: But I wonder as well, I because I would like I I would like to talk about some of the crypto related projects you've been doing a little bit later. But I sure. want to keep I want to try and like build a, a, even more of a bridge between some of the themes you're talking about in the book and that obviously you live through. In that kind of post-internet um, speculative financing uh, mm-hmm. time in New York, I want to try and build a, a more, even more of a bridge between that and where we're going, because like, you know, okay, if you bring up the reason why you say scarecrows around post-internet, and everybody, I think who, d- depending on their, you know, depending on their their relative involvement in that period of time, does feel like kind of compromise or, or somewhat uh, unusual about about it, right? Because as you said before, like, there's. There's people who were attempting to reflect reality, oftentimes a reality they weren't comfortable with, but were wanting to attack head on and not pretend like the world, um, you know, we still lived in 1995 or something (laughs) like that. Um, But there is is also like real concessions to that, right? Like the more puritanical uh, sides of the art world really kind of, look upon that time as like the ultimate selling out, right? Like this, the most cynical thing you could possibly do to participate and to, and to, and to not maintain this illusion that art is, is purely aloof to material conditions in the world and, and the reality of having to have a job and all this kind of stuff, which I personally reject. Um, but I do wonder, uh, there are cases where, when I think back to that time, where I do think that, that things were leaned into a little bit. And obviously in, in, in advance of, of what's kind of happening with, with crypto and this kind of challenge of like conceiving the new internet and trying to tease out of those things, um, something that maybe isn't just, isn't just going with the flow, right? Like that's something that is maybe an intervention or is kind of ideologically driven. Like, are there any lessons that you take from that period of time that you think can be brought over? Do you know
2: definitely, what I mean? Like, I, definitely, I'm so it appreciative into of this framing. was it too much? And, and what, no, are, what I, are the
1: boundaries there? I,
2: I think that I'm so appreciative of this framing um, because I think it's really important also to like post-mortem periods when we're going into new ones and think about what lessons can, we can draw from them. And definitely with post-internet, I think that some of the legitimate cynicism from the outside came from people kind of, people within the the quote-unquote post-internet movement kind of like missing the sell-by date on their optimism. Like, I think there is yeah. a period when new technologies and new structures are open-ended and could go yeah. any place. And then there's a period when you see the ways that they're actually impacting the world and impacting people's lives and the way capital and power are running through them. And you have to make mm-hmm. a critical judgment. And some of the mm-hmm. artists, and I won't name names, but people can use their imaginations – Like, some of the artists involved in that epic, you know, just kept on with the optimism kind of blindly after the writing was on the wall. And I think that's why people thought it was really cynical. Um, And people got sort of, like, carried away with the, like, more is more, anything can be anything type of approach, which had some really cool and fun outputs that I don't want people to be puritanical about like I think the idea that anything is fair game and that experimenting with new forms of media which is something that we've all done in our practices is valid is very was very much alive and well in a really fun way in post-internet where like you know kind of just like the the like ephemera aspect of it is important Mm -hmm. and then also in the way that this movement or moment or period has been historicized it got kind of like slurped into a traditional art history bracket where it's like we name a period and then we pick individual artists mostly men mostly white men who represent it and then we have like think that they're good or bad and actually what was going on is that yes there were a bunch of white men as solo agents making work in that period but there were also it was also kind of what grew out of surf clubs and DJs and record labels and collectives and fashion and art and media all coming together. And a lot of those collectives and a lot of those more sort of like borderline projects that didn't fit into one discipline were not made of white men and were like rather like queer and diverse. Um, But since that doesn't fit into like, you know, a Sotheby's catalog, it just like isn't what happened. So I think that there's a little bit of like a warped, memory that also can Mm -hmm. make it easier to feel ultra cynical about it. Um, But I definitely think about what I learned in that period when it comes to crypto, because yes, when things are just completely nascent, I think it's important to keep an open mind because if you're approaching totally nascent technologies with pessimism, you're going to sort of like create a negative outcome. You have to like at least be willing to entertain what good might come of something so that you could, if you wanted, contribute to that future. But then once you see messed up stuff happening, you have to be kind of self-aware enough to say, okay, that thing is whack. That's not right. Actually, I I wasn't sure or I made a mistake or I got involved in something, you know, and you have to be willing to change your mind and to communicate your values and to have Mm -hmm. values. Basically, you have to be able to have values, too, and not just like get into this like void or this like kind of nihilist, like nothing means anything or everything is fair game zone, because um, I think that that can lead to less than fabulous outcomes, to say the least. So that's how I would put it.
1: Yeah, that's good. It's it's also it's interesting too, right? I, I I mean, on that point, like I have two points really. Like one, I mean, the the what's interesting here and still kind of unresolved in terms of how it will work out is obviously, you know, showing some open minded, not necessarily enthusiasm, but like um, entertaining um, the rise of like the social web of a bunch of like centralized uh, uh, entities, whether that be like. Centralized VCs funding projects or centralized companies themselves is is a very different kettle of fish in a sense to uh, showing an open mind to a decentralized uh, uh, space where of course there are still power dynamics and serious asymmetries, um, but the the spectrum of possibilities is not quite as locked down, right? Like it's right. not. Um, but the but the second part too that I think is a really interesting in drawing that bridge. I mean, I've, I've personally experienced this a little bit. Is you know to see how. Um, Many of the people who were somewhat skeptical, myself somewhat included, to be honest, um, you know, this and and Cahal was like peripheral to stuff I was involved in at the time. And like I was definitely at the time kind of more on the like, how do we use these tools to like, you know, increase uh, uh, participation by people like, you know, uh, can we can we use like decentralized or open source tools to make a Twitter that everybody owns, et cetera. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. That, that many of those, that kind of, uh, that kind of emphasis around about like 2014 was very embraced by people who were quite cynical of the web two era. Um, and it's funny to see how over time, like that value set of of me at the time being like, well, I, I think this is kind of would be a better way to run things when that ends up becoming a, a dominant emergent trend to the extent whereby, you know, people start investing money in those ideas and it starts uh, uh, proliferating. Um, all of a sudden that those quite good ideas that seemed kind of like a, a, a break from where things were going in 2013, 2014 are now kind of cast as, you know, uh, the uh, bad thing, the bad things is You kind of like, right, right,
2: right, right. The that, oh, know, really? Like,
1: you have companies out there and protocols right now who are like, oh, by the way, like, this is entirely open source. We're not going to tell you what to do with anything. You can have complete control over your uh, your practice. Uh, we're going to give voting equity to everybody. And people now are like, you capitalist pigs. Um, like right, in 2014, right, that was right. like, in 2014, that was that was the, the, the activist position on this stuff, right? I don't uh, think the
0: position has necessarily changed. It's just a major failure in messaging around a lot of these projects. True, that, and also the
1: fact that I think that there are some people who are uh, baddicks who, are, who, who, in a sense, like don't have the value set, don't have a consistent value right. set, Khabib. and just dislike things that that transpire. Right. That, that's kind of right. The, the right. Right. <laughs> and I
2: think that that's part of what we're talking about, where it's like I think I was very inspired by my college professor Wendy Chun, who's an amazing theorist of new media, and she was always challenging us to find positions around technology that were neither pro or con you know that that didn't that take the this is really good or this is really bad place just to begin with and then of course you know making necessary criticisms is a part of that process it's not to just say like oh we adopt a centrist view where like we can never make a decision but just that you don't start in calling things like super good or super bad because you know (laughs) as we start watching these historical cycles play out and as we see the development of technology accelerate in our lifetimes which gives us this unique vantage we notice that there are these sort of like echoes in how people respond to things which is what i think you're talking about like you know the people who are super intoxicated by an idea or really vilified idea that they may have in a time machine really supported you know a few years earlier just because it's getting attention or has money or has somebody attached to it that they think is whack or whatever and of course like i think it's the job of a really thoughtful participant in these systems to not fall into those traps because there's way more to it than that and you know Mm -hmm. i was super not into crypto the first wave like at all i was like totally irritated and bored by it I was like cool I moved to Berlin to like hang out with my artist and writer and musician friends and now everyone's just like talking about finance that I want to kill myself (laughs) (laughs) and like also all of these bros are saying how it's going to be like so great for everyone and I don't really believe them you know like I don't really this is not really like hitting home with me as Mm -hmm. true I also like didn't have any money to play with at that time so there was like the sort of like learn by doing part of it was not really available to me. And I only Mm -hmm. started getting interested in it when there was like cultural content involved. So in this most recent Mm -hmm. wave and when it wasn't just about financial technology, because that's just not something that I get like super amped about unless I'm getting paid to be amped about it. Um, Whereas I obviously care very deeply about how art and culture and literature and imagery you know are created and circulated so it was a much easier thing for me to entertain or it has been you know it's only been the last few months really which is bizarre because it feels like so much has happened um mm-hmm. but of course it's so recent so the skept- I was also like ultra skeptical um and I'm still skeptical of certain parts sure, of the of thing obviously because I always will be but I am very careful to not reject anything out of hand and part of that is that I also have this new role of being a publisher, which is, yep. you know, related to the stuff that I've done in the past, but different because I've never really had the responsibility of stewarding other people's work. I'm actually super excited because the first Deluge book that I didn't write is coming out tomorrow. Um, and wow. It's a, po- it's a book of poems called Black Venus Flytrap by an amazing poet named Janetta Rich. And we're launching it at a very cute new bookstore in L.A. called Despair Books. And so I'm stoked. Um, and, you know, I'm in this position of having to take care of other artists work and figure out how it's going to live in the world and making sure that people feel like they have what they need. Um, and so from that vantage point, you know, I can't discount anything because what I started realizing when we, I started this project Deluge with two of my friends during lockdown and, because there are so many amazing tools for publishing right now that are relatively easy to access on the internet, we started, it doesn't require a lot of overhead or upfront investment. Um, Mm -hmm. So we were kind of like running a business that was breaking even and making like little bits of money right from the beginning. So if you're listening to this and you want to start a publishing company, you should do it. But the, (laughs) um, but what I noticed, of course, is that we weren't actually paying for the thing that we're selling. Like, I didn't get paid to write my novel. Jeanette didn't get paid. I mean she got an advance, but the advance in no way reflects the amount the lifetime of work that it took Absolutely. to write those yeah. poems. Um and that's why I started getting really excited about mirror and other experiments in the crypto space that actually seemed like they might be able to direct proper amounts of money toward artistic projects because then you might actually, you know, be working with something and not just replicating the old model in like a slightly more like user-friendly like web native manner. Um, Mm -hmm. and that definitely, that interest definitely came out of me being kind of responsible in a new way for other people's work, which is, wasn't my situation in the past as much.
1: Yeah. And for those, for those who are not familiar, um, we're going to have mirror on at some time soon. Um, but would you mind maybe explaining a little bit about, how that process has worked in terms of, I mean, you've been, you've been interacting with it both as like a solo artist and as a publisher. Um, and it might be good to just spell out for people totally. you know, what tools, totally. it, what tools exist and what the utility is of those tools from your perspective.
2: Totally. So, okay. So like what, what, I'm like, where are we in the timeline? It's June. So like a few months ago, let's just put it that way. Cause I get so confused about non-linear time. Um a few months ago when NFTs really started popping off um I had a conversation on the phone with my former collaborator from KO Dina Diego and I was like what's going on with NFTs like should we make NFTs of the old K-hole work, like what in your what in your opinion is going on that's interesting. And she kind of gave me like a fast and dirty tutorial on various players in the space. And also we're like, oh, so and so with that username, that's actually someone we've known forever or whatever, Mm -hmm, (laughs) and kind of like demystified who was demystified who was working on these various projects. And one of the things that she told me about was Mirror, which is a platform that's basically like Medium on the blockchain. So if you don't know Medium, it's a blogging platform, very straightforward, where people can just put up text and image. And it's kind of like easy to read and easy to find on the internet. And mirror is quite similar in the way that it looks. But on the back end, it's rather different, because it is all, you know, part of the decentralized web suite of tools and way of doing things. And it also has these really, it has an important difference, which it has tools that are sort of like, baked into it that let you as a writer either like mint something that you post on it as an NFT or do a crowdfund. Or um, now that I think there are even more features that allow you to sort of like raise money or receive payments around a certain thing that then gets rooted to a bunch of different people, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if I'm going to be able to like sum those up incredibly articulately, but I think people get the idea. So it's sort of like you know, it's like a blogging platform that has really interesting tools for direct payment um, that are baked into it. And then yep. Dina and a couple of other people started financing pieces of writing by doing crowd funds, And those crowd funds would allow people to connect their crypto wallets directly to the mirror page that they were reading and make a contribution and in exchange for that contribution, they get a token that represents the project. And then there is a whole variety of things that you can do with that token and it kind of can take on its own life. One thing yeah. that one thing that almost everyone does who uses the crowdfund feature is, um, I feel like the grammar of the sentence is getting totally illegible, but basically I when really you know use, it. when you do the, so just bear with me, everybody. Um, when you do a crowdfund and you give people a token, uh, I pretty much everyone who's done that so far, to my knowledge, then also like make some sort of NFT based on the work that is getting um, getting funded. Uh, and some portion of the sale of that NFT will get rooted back to the people who paid into the original crowdfund and hold the token. And then another very common thing that people do and that I've done is create a discord that's gated based on the token. So there's A particular bot collab land that makes this really straightforward and so basically people who support your project can then have an ongoing conversation with you or with each other about the work and so it all kind of just was suggesting to me like really cool possibilities for how work could be funded on a legitimate scale like somewhat similar to how people used to get paid for writing before writing got more and more devalued and you know obviously music has a parallel story that's a little bit different but has also been radically devalued and so you know I was impressed by the success of the of the crowdfunding projects that I was observing and at that time I also had dreamed up an idea for a second novel and I was so pumped um because it kind of felt like falling in love it was like so exciting to me that I actually had a real idea. And I was Mm. off to the races trying to work on it. But then I also had all this other stuff that I had to do, like with my commercial work and with running the press. And I realized that I couldn't just bop in and out of working on this project, the way that other writing projects of mine have been a little bit more elastic or forgiving in that sense. And then I started getting really bummed out. And I was like, Ugh, what am I gonna do? Like, I'm not gonna get to work on this thing for ages. It's so depressing, like I'm so stoked. And then I figured I might as well try and fund it on mirror because why not? Um, and so I set up a crowdfund with a lot of help from the mirror crew, which was essential. I definitely would not have been able to do it on my own. And a lot of people gave me advice in a very sweet way. So that was really fun, like I felt like maybe you guys have had this experience too. People are, like, excited to talk about the possibilities with these new technological tools, which I personally find really enjoyable. And I also feel like I'm, like, making new internet friends for the first time in years. And all of that just feels really good. So I was, like, hitting people up and just being like, hey, like, I know you don't know me. Oh, wait. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Oh, no. There was just... Someone was calling me. Okay, um, I was like, I know you don't know me, but like I'm working on this. Do you want to talk? And everyone basically was like, call me in an hour, and was like super generous with their time and attention. So that really helped me get a grip on the on what was going on. And you know, I put up a description of what I wanted to do. It's similar to a Kickstarter. So it was like, this is my project. This is the book that I'm trying to write. The working title is Burn Alpha. And you know, if you contribute this amount, you get these things out of it. If you contribute this amount, you get these things out of it. Everyone will be thanked in the acknowledgments. Everyone will get a kickback from the NFTs I eventually sell. Everyone will have access to in-progress readings of the work, et cetera. Um, And I was just astonished by how well it went. Basically, it was like fully funded within 13 hours. And I just like lost my shit completely because I had totally given up on the idea that I would ever get a, like, traditional publishing style advance, which this basically is. Um, But it's this, like, in such a cuter way, because it's not, like, connecting me to some, like, fuddy-duddy publishing company that, like, is going to be weird to me or have, like, strings attached. It's, like, all people who seemed legitimately stoked about letting me do my own vision completely. And that was just so encouraging and cute. And then I also found the attitude of culture adjacent crypto people to be hilariously positive. So instead of being like nonstop negged as I have been in the like media and publishing world, I mean, this is not to like say that I haven't also been encouraged there, but it's just much more normal to neg writers in the traditional media world everyone was like you are loved you are an amazing creator i was like what is happening this is so weird like do they not know that you're supposed to be like an asshole to an artist and that artists are supposed to be assholes to each other it just seemed like twilight zone in a good way um so that's sort of like my story with mirror i'm not really sure if that made sense always with these new platforms and stuff like I get a little bit marble mouthed because I'm not used to talking about it that much so if there's anything that I should clarify no that, that, that
1: was pretty clear I mean it is quite difficult too right because it's not it's like when you're describing mirror you know you it's kind of like oh it, there are certain conceptual underpinnings to some of the stuff that just don't have there's not like a common understanding of them generally so you, so you kind of have to dance around it it's like oh yeah it's kind of like So it's like Medium, but there's a Kickstarter component and you can create a co-op from the Kickstarter part. Um, And by the way, that's also your mailing list. It's your mailing list because it connects to a Discord and it's like you just have to kind of do it. And then once you've participated in it in a second, you're like, oh yeah, this is just a different deal that has lots of similar or like familiar components to it. Um, yeah, but I, th- I think that was that was that was a pretty good description.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious how you plan on utilizing Discord because you know it's obviously great to to be able to have a place for people who follow your work to be able to create a community around that but I could also see some kind of um, pitfalls of maybe wanting to involve that community too much into the, into the creative process. So Mm -hmm. I wonder what Mm -hmm. your
2: approach to that will be. Well, so far it's, it's been just really like pretty posy and light. Um, But one thing that I've been doing, that's been really fun is just like dropping little collections of the epubs and pdfs and digital books that i've been hoarding for years like around certain topics just so that people can like have fun things to read while i'm writing my book basically and since that's just like a nerdy thing that i love um and it's kind of analogous to the way i might use arena which is another platform very Mm -hmm. dear to my heart just like you know sharing some of the ephemera or like stuff i've pirated um around certain ideas with people who might also be interested Um, that's how I've been using it so far. I think because I've, you know, been doing my own work for ages and like already wrote a book, obviously, like I don't, there's like, I'm not so worried about involving the the people who are, have supported the project too much, like in terms Mm -hmm. of how that might affect the work itself. It's more just like, there are different modes that you're in when you're like, Talking about and promoting and connecting around a work versus when you're like incubating and actually working on it, which is like much more antisocial, and that's yeah. the part that's different. And I've been in kind of like launch mode since for the last six months or more. You know, since my since my book came out, uh, and also doing the the mirror crowdfund around the second book has been similar to that, and promoting the press and all of that. And that vibe is just like kind of fundamentally different from the headspace yeah. that you need to be in when you're working on something really in a solitary mm-hmm. meditative yeah. way and so that's yeah. the part that will be interesting to navigate um because all of this stuff
0: is completely new mm-hmm. yeah totally Look, it's very similar to making an album and then kind of
1: yeah well, well that's I mean totally that, that's also totally kind of like, it's kind of like a um It's a general kind of tension that you have to dance with. I think, again, going back to this point of like, everyone now for better and worse has to, you're your own manager and publicist and whatever. And so like, irrespective of the fact that there's all these new tools, uh, potentially to be able to fund art, there's also got to be a clause in there that hopefully over time as this stuff matures, this would be one like thing I've been very insistent on, there's got to be a clause on there to actually give people time to make art, right? right. Yes, where like, yes. And Mirrors kind of, I think, hints at something very positive in that respect because of this kind of advanced funding component to it, right? Where like, you know, the, the dream isn't to just be able to like circulate money around people who are always online, right? Like, right. because because fundamentally there there is a difference. Like there is a difference when someone is just kind of making something for the feed or making something to maintain to be a part of a conversation, and like making a piece of artwork that's really hard and requires you to yeah go into like you know uh, despair and and solitary confinement for a <laughs> right, of time. Right, like, right, That kind of artwork is still really valuable, you know. Um,
2: totally. And like compared to some like sub, uh, we're not going to get into the whole Substack thing, but just like obviously Substack did find a way to get writers resources, which I appreciate, but it still is on this like serial time-based model where Mm -hmm. I only think that's really amazing for you as a writer, if that's how you naturally write. Otherwise it's Mm -hmm. just like reproducing the problem of the internet and the feed and the idea that we have to just like produce more and more and more all the time. Yeah. It's just like, I think that that is an issue where especially for something like a novel or a book of poems or a serious album or whatever it might be, you know, that doesn't fit into this model where you just put out little bits of things in a very, yeah. like, bite-sized, serialized way. I mean, obviously, like, Dickens' serialized novels or people of serialized novels, of course. You're listening
0: but- to the free version of this podcast. If you would like to hear the full version and support this series, please visit patreon.com interdependence. This podcast is ad-free and only possible through patron support. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.